Good morning. And if Corey didn't have enough announcements for you, I'm going to drop a couple more on you too. All right, don't forget this Wednesday uh, evening at 6 p.m., we will uh, be here in the auditorium for our uh, prayer time, prayer meeting. Let me, uh, for those of you that have not joined us, uh, the first Wednesday of each month we gather and there's no singing, there's no preaching, just praying. Uh, last month, it was just uh, such a, a powerful time in here. Some people stayed 15 minutes, some stayed uh, more than two hours. All ages, families praying, pray, uh, parents praying with their children. Uh, it was just a powerful time. And, and I would encourage each and, and all of you uh, to be back this Wednesday for that time as well, to just come together and pray with your church as, uh, as we lean in now to our Advent season. Let me also say this, thank you so much for your incredible generosity. I shared with you a couple weeks ago uh, a desire for us to have a blessings offering for our mission partners, and I'll be sharing those details with you next week as we have those disbursements made and everything, but I can tell you this already, you have overwhelmed me with your generosity, and I know it will be an overwhelming blessing to each and every one of our partners also. With that said, today we find ourselves in our final message in our series the miners, right? So we find ourselves in the book of Malachi. Now, Malachi not only is the last book in our series, but it is also the final book of the Old Testament. That is true uh, canonically, if you will, the, the last book in, in our canon of, of our Bible is as far as the Old Testament, uh, but also chronologically, meaning it was also the most recent. Malachi is made up of four chapters and is followed then by 400 years of silence from God. What's unique about that, one of the many things unique about Malachi, there are 55 verses in this book, and nearly all of them are God directly speaking, speaking to the people and with the people uh, and also to us today. And so with this, then we have what is God's final words before the Old Testament closes, before this intertestamental period. And so with that, then, that is the, the final words that God will speak. And just like anything else, you know, final words always carry a lot of weight with them, a, a, a lot of meaning. I, uh, from, from the smallest to, to the largest, I can remember, uh, you know, when I was in that season of life and dropping the kids off at school, right? Elementary school, middle school, whatever. And, you know, you, you're in the car ride and you're talking the whole way there and you're praying together that morning. And, and then it comes that time where the door opens. And they're about to go out and, and, and to, to leave the, the confines of, uh, of your vehicle and go into that school. Right now, I don't know about you, but I always wanted to just give some kind of wisdom or say, you know, and it always came out bad, poorly, you know, but I always did my best, right? But it's that, those final words before they go and, and face their day, uh, the students, the temptations, whatever they may face. And, you know, you throw something out like, hey, soar with the eagles, don't flock with the turkeys, or, you know, whatever the case is. Right? It, was, it was pitiful, right? Uh, but I always want to come out with something. Because those final words carry so much weight, or at least I felt that way. Uh, even, even more so, my goodness, when you drop your child off to college, right? And you're really dropping them off for school, right? Like you're getting in a car and going uh, uh, down the interstate, right? There, there's going to be a separation. And for each of my kids, when, when they face that time, I, mean, I kind of set them aside and we had that, that heart-to-heart. Right, it just, just, just pouring in the, those final words before they begin this new chapter of their life. With all that said, as important as final words are to us, imagine God's final words. What will they be? Well, let's look and see. Malachi chapter 1 will begin in our opening in verse 1. Uh, all of the text as well as place for notes can be found in our church app today or you can open in your Bible. 
It says this in verse 1, a pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, like we've seen throughout uh, most of our uh, minor prophets that we've looked at, all we know about the author is what we have here in verse 1. There is a, a name given, Malachi. That, it's only found here, nowhere else in the Bible. Not only that, we know that the word Malachi means messenger in the Hebrew. And so because of that, there's a lot of debate. As a matter of fact, scholars are really split down the middle to whether or not Malachi is actually a name of a person or simply the title that was given to the messenger of these final words of God. We don't know for certain, so uh, it can go either way. Wherever you fall on that one, completely open-handed issue, right? But what we do know is that this pronouncement from God, the, these final words that he gave to us, came in the, in the 400s B.C., that was about 100 years following the Israelites' return from their Babylonian captivity and exile. And what their plan was, was that as God released them, as he gave them this favor, they would return then uh, to Jerusalem and they would faithfully serve God. And then as they faithfully served God, they would wait for that Messiah to come and establish his new kingdom, the, the new Jerusalem. That was the plan. But that didn't happen. Instead, what happens, when they returned, they were as corrupt as ever before and just as unfaithful to God as the ancestors before them were. And so what we see then, remember this, this is following Nehemiah's completion. He, he had rebuilt the wall, the, the, the temple was, was built and established, and yet once again, as we've seen time and time again, certainly throughout our entire study of the Old Testament uh, this past year, time and time again, God rescues his people, God, God blesses his people, and then they turn from God. That, that, that cycle that we see, and I think we can probably relate to that in our lives too, can't we? That often, the more blessed we are from God, the easier it is to walk away from. Yet when we're in trials, then that's when we feel the greatest need for our relationship with him. And so we have recorded then in this final book, not a conversation between Malachi, we have the person or the messenger, and God. But really, it's a conversation between God and his people. Malachi then simply records this conversation and relays it to us today. Thus, the name Messenger. And God makes a claim throughout this. So you're going to see over and over again. He'll make a claim about the people, about his children. And then the Israelites will respond to God by disagreeing with God, disputing God. And then God will respond again to them. This happens six times throughout this entire book. But what's interesting is you read through this, instead of God being defensive, instead of God just dropping the hammer like he could and probably should have, God just says, yeah, I'm glad you asked. And answers their question. Right? He's not defensive at all. And so what I want us to do this morning in the time that I have allotted, and it's not enough, I want us to look at the six disputes, if you will, uh, that, that are laid out in the book of Malachi. Now, with that being said, I, I'm going to read a significant amount of text as we go through this. And I know I've said this probably every time. I'm going to scratch the surface today. All right? So it's your job, it's your homework then as you leave today throughout this week for you to dive into these four chapters, right, with your own study. And so I want to encourage you and, and hopefully equip you to have a better devotional time throughout this week. Now, with that said, then let's look at the first dispute. Let's continue reading in verse 2 through verse 5. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. 
I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of the armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. Well, here's our first dispute, and here's how it lays out. God says, I love you. And the people respond, how have you loved us? And God says, I chose Jacob's family. I chose you. I chose your ancestor. Now, if you remember in our study in Genesis, we spent several weeks looking at the lives of both Jacob and Esau. And what you may recall from, from that study is Jacob was no spiritual uh, Hebrew poster child, right? Not at all. In fact, his name means he was a deceiver, right? That's exactly what he did. He deceived his brother Esau to, to gain his birthright, right? That, that's what we know about him. But what I love is God's plan for redemption of man has never been about man's goodness. From the very beginning, it's been all about God's grace, not how good you are, but how graceful He is. And we see that both Old Testament and certainly the New Testament. But we get to this passage, and there's that interesting word there, hate. God says, Esau, I hate him. I love Jacob. I hated Esau. Now, now here's what I want to say about this, and probably spend more time in this than, than, than the other five, the remaining five disputes. But I want you to keep in mind, Words like colors have a spectrum of meaning, right? Uh, I, I remember uh, several years ago, my wife said, hey, we're going to repaint the house. <laughs> Words a man always loves to hear, right? Uh, and the word we is very, you know, very liberal there. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, we're, we're going to repaint the house. Uh, back in the day, that meant I was going to repaint the house. Today, that means I've got to pay somebody to repaint the house. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. But, um, but so we're going to paint it gray. Oh, Amen. Because there's what, three colors of gray? Like, you know, you got like light gray, dark gray, battleship gray, you know, dolphin gray. What, what can there be? And then you go to the paint store, and there's a whole wall de dedicated just to gray. There are thousands of grays. Oh, they're all gray. But this one has a, a pink hue. Uh, this one has a green shade. This one is in your, your charcoal family of gray. There are just hundreds or thousands of grays to choose from, right? Well, that, that's true with our words, too. And it, words can have a, a multitude of meanings, if you will. The way a color falls on a spectrum, uh, so can words. We, we know that with the word love. Just like he said, I, I love Jacob. Uh, we, we use that word. We throw the word love around like crazy, don't we? Right? I love my wife. I love to fish. Right? Uh, I love fried pies. You know, there's all kinds of things we love, but certainly those carry different weights and different meanings, Right? They certainly should anyway. Well, that's also true with the word hate. And, and here what God is saying is when he says, uh, J Esau, I hate it, he's saying Esau was, was unchosen. He was not preferred. In essence, I chose Jacob and I didn't choose Esau. Jesus used a similar statement in Luke 14, 26 when he said this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Now, Jesus certainly didn't hate Mary, right? In fact, one of his, some of his final words from the cross as he was breathing out his last was he looked down to tell John to care for his mother. Why? Because he loved her. Right? Well, what was Jesus talking about? He was talking about there, there has to be a priority in your love, in, in your worship, in your respect, right? And he says this, I've got to come first, right? You have to choose me over all others, even those that, that you may be closest to in this world, right? And that's true for us today as well. I mean, I, Jeff, I, Jeff down in front, I love Jeff. I do. But I'll tell you what, if I've got to make a life or death decision between him and my wife, Christy, I ain't got to pray about that one. <laughs> Jeff's dead. I'm sorry. It, 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 yeah. Now, does that mean I hate him? I, I'm certainly not going to choose him. I just, I love my wife so much and so much more. Right? I'll choose her every time. I love you, buddy. Um, and so, let me also say this, because I, I know my, my Reformed friends here today, and, and, I, and I mean that with the greatest respect. I, I love you. Let me say this. I am neither a Calvinist nor an Arminius. I'm not. Um, you have both election and atonement for all those who would believe, who would receive Christ. Both are in the Bible. I'm a biblicist. They're both there. I believe them both equally. I believe that, uh, that, that God has chosen those who would receive. I also believe that, that, that anyone who receives Christ will be saved. We saw in our, in our first study, the, uh, the book of Joel, our first minor prophet we looked at, where he made that statement that, that, that Peter repeated at Pentecost uh, the, the birth or certainly the empowerment of the early church. Paul repeated in Romans 10, 13 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone will be saved. Now, does God choose us before we choose him? He does. That's in the Bible too. I believe that they're both there and so I believe them equally. And with God, his election and our free will can go hand in hand. They can work together. He said, well, well, how do you reconcile that? How do you explain that? How do you explain that God took a handful of dust and made a man? Can you? How do you explain that God took from that same man that he made from dust a rib out of him and made a woman? Can you explain that? Can you wrap your mind around that? But does God have a problem with it? No, why? Because he's God and we're not. Right? And so that's where I fall with this. And that certainly shapes my missiology too, that, that I believe that we're just called to tell everybody about Jesus. And no one is too far from him that everyone can be saved. Amen? That's the rally cry of the New Testament church. Northside, that should be our rally cry too. Amen? Amen. We share the gospel with everyone because everyone can be saved. No one is too far. And that's what we agree together at Northside. Listen, we can come together as brothers, regardless of what you believe about election, whatever your soteriology is, right? We come together as a church, a mixed bag of people who are just eat up in love with Jesus Christ. We are redeemed, and we want to see everyone else have that same opportunity. So, so we tell everyone about him. Now, remember also here in this passage, God's telling them how he loved them. Right? They question, he says, I love you, how you love us, right? And so he lays this out by telling them how he chose to love them. He loved them by, by choosing them, by choosing Jacob over Esau. And that's exactly what election is. It's God choosing to love someone. See, God has chosen to love you. And now you need to decide to love him back, to receive that gift 
of Christ, that gift of salvation. That's what it is. Jesus summarized it in this way in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that what he gave his only, one and only son, that everyone who believes in him, everyone, will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know, when you look at those, both Old and New Testament, where it says everyone who believes, anyone who believes will be saved. Do you know what that word means both in Hebrew and in Greek, both Old Testament and New Testament? Everyone means everyone. Anyone means anyone. And that's exactly what I'm saying. Hey, uh, side note on this before we go to the second dispute. King Herod, who we're going we're gonna, we're gonna to be hearing a lot about him in, in the days and weeks ahead, right? He, he was the one, remember, he was king uh, there uh, in, in Judah in Bethlehem when, uh, when Jesus was born, the wise men see the star, and they come, you know, they take their long journey to get there. And uh, He was actually an Edomite. The one who ordered the decree to have all the male children uh, in, in that entire region murdered. He was an Edomite. He was one of the unchosen from God. And so, which makes sense. That's why he wanted Jesus killed, because he didn't have a rightful claim to the throne that he sat on. He was not a descendant of David, and Jesus was. Total side note. Well, the second dispute, let's look at that. Verse 6 A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's your fear of me, says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or, or show you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. And now, plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show you any favor? Asked the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Well, here we have this, this second dispute laid out. And God says this, you despise me and you defile my altar, my altar, my altar for sacrifice and, and worship. You've defiled it. And they ask the question, well, well, how have we done this? How have we despised you? How have we defied your altar? And then he responds with, with your defiled offerings. See, they chose to not get God their best, even though it's exactly what he had done for them. He had removed them from captivity. He had, he had reminded them, listen, I chose you over all others. I gave you my best, and yet you're choosing to not give me your best. And he even lays it out. He says, you're, you're bringing in these gimped up animals onto the altar. Right, like you're leading your sheep in, that thing's all jacked up with like a, a missing leg and stuff, you know. Here, God, we can't do anything with this. We don't want this in our gene pool. We don't want this replenishing. We're afraid to eat it. That, that meat might be messed up, right? You, know, you got like the one-eyed, you know, chicken coming in or whatever. And they're saying, we don't want this. Ooh, let's give that to God. It's not back in the day. People used to do that with couches here at the church, right? <laughs> How do you get rid of a couch? You donate it to the church. That, that was like a thing for a little while. We, we you know. Had to have a deacon meeting over that one, but um, Riley, I don't want this in my house. The spring's coming through it and everything else. This would be such a blessing to the church, right? 
church, would you come get this? <laughs> well, that's kind of what the people were doing. Right? They, 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 they were bringing in what they didn't even want and offering it. You know, I wonder today, if we're not careful, can we be guilty of that as well? Giving God just our excess, our leftovers. If I've got, you know, I had a busy week, but it opened up. So now that I've got some spare time, yeah, I'll go serve the church. Yeah, hey, I'll go do that. I'll, I'll help this person. Got to the end of the month instead of starting at the beginning of the month. And, you know, there's a little extra money. So, hey, maybe we, we will give this month. Yeah. Are we guilty of that same thing? Are we giving our best? And look what he says in verse 10 right there. This is so powerful. He says, I wish one of you would shut the temple doors. God here is saying, listen, I would rather the church, capital C, right, all believers, I would rather the church close its doors than offer half-hearted worship. Can you, that's what he's saying here. Hey, I'd rather you, don't even meet if you're not going to meet with a genuine heart. If you're not going to come to worship expecting to hear from me, uh, excited to say, I don't care if it's contemporary, I don't care if it's in a hymn, I don't care what it is, I just want to sing to God. That's how we should come. I, I want to come, I want to give to God, I, I want to serve, I, I want to do these things. He says, give me your best. And if you're not willing to give me your best, why would you bother to come? We certainly expect his best. And I believe, I believe that, that when we do that, when we come to that place where we, we, we just desire every, not just Sunday, every morning, God, I want to give you my best today. When we make that commitment to give him his best, our best, he'll choose to give us his best. He certainly did in Christ. Well, our third dispute, chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, says this, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in all Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and, and groaning, because no, you no longer respect your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Verse 14, and you ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is, what is the one seeking? Godly offspring? So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. He says this, you men have turned against me and your wives. They say, well, well how have we done this? He says, you've divorced your wives for, for unwarranted reasons, unbiblical reasons. Then you've gone and married pagan women and now you're worshiping their foreign gods. It's interesting in seven verses right here, he uses that word treacherously five times. Now, the word treacherously, it's not one we throw around much today, 
But really what it means is unfaithfulness. You're, you're being unfaithful. See, this is not, some people take this passage and they want to twist it, right? This is not about marrying other races. This is not about marrying other ethnicities. It's about them being unfaithful to God and unfaithful to their spouse. He said, how? Where, where do we say it? By marrying non-believers. He, he spells that out point blank here. See, you cannot say that I am being faithful and wholehearted in my love for God and yet join together with someone else who denies Him. You can't do it. It, it doesn't fit. It, it doesn't work. And that's what God is calling them out for. And what He says in His response is, listen, I want better for you. Notice He says, I want you to have a covenant marriage. Yeah, a covenant marriage is this. I love Jesus. My wife loved Jesus. In matter of fact, we love Jesus even more than we love each other. But the more we love Him, the better we'll love each other. That is a covenant relationship. That's a covenant marriage. We understand Jesus gave all for me. I'm going to give all for my spouse. God says, that's what I want for you. And when you have that, then you'll see godly offspring as well. Choose wholehearted faithfulness. Friends, especially in this younger generation, even over your own desires. Choose to love God wholeheartedly. Well, the fourth dispute, uh, beginning in verse 17, says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you ask, how have we wearied Him? When you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and He is delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, see, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. Now they're crying out this. They say, listen, where's the God of justice? And God responds, I'll send my messenger, and he's going to prepare the way. Now, here he's talking about, and in your study this week, he, he's talking about John the Baptist who would come, who would take that mantle, who, who would carry that torch that Malachi has left behind, that mantle to cry out that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is coming. And so the people felt, like in this time, that God was either unjust or negligent, right? They're, they're looking around and, and they're seeing that, you know, other people are being blessed, and yet I am giving to the Lord, I am doing these things, and, and they seem more blessed than, than I am. But the truth is, and what God calls them out for is they weren't. In fact, they, they were being negligent to God, half-hearted in their worship at best. And so once again, we see in, in, in another minor prophet, and again in the Old Testament, where the people want God to dispense judgment on others, but not on themselves, right? Uh, justice for you, grace for me, right? That's what they want. God, if you really love me, then I'll get away with anything, but my neighbor won't get away with the same thing, right? I want you to, to rain down your terror on them. Forgive me of, of all my sin. That's where they were. Well, it continues. The, the, the fifth dispute, chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Because I, the Lord, have not changed. You, descendants of Jacob, have not been destroyed. God keeps his promise even when we don't. Even when, when his children don't. He still remains faithful to us. Since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. 
How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payment of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land or the vine in your field. It will not fail to produce food, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider your fortune, that you are fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. He says this, listen, turn back to me. And they say, how? And he says this, stop robbing me. Stop robbing me of the tenth, or what we would say today, the, the, the tithe that is due. In verse 10 then, I love it. God kind of goes John Wayne on him, doesn't he? He says, test me in it. I wish you would. <laughs> uh, test me. Go ahead. See what I'll do. Right? This is the only time in all of Scripture that God says to test him. And he says, but when it comes to this, test me. Now, this is not some prosperity gospel message, right? And that's where a lot of people go, and I'm not even going to camp here. Right? That says you need to give to God so you can get from God, right? That's half-hearted. In essence, that's what the people were doing. That was conditional for God. But we're giving because we've already got, because we've received so much. In fact, when he talks about the floodgates releasing them, that's a reference to rain coming down on their crops. Remember, you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 12, that exact statement. That's exactly what he was saying. Listen, you still need to do the work. You still need to plow the field. You still need to plant the field. You're still going to have to pick the produce when it comes in. But if you'll do that, I'll send the rain. I'll do what you can't do. Well, the final dispute then, chapter 3 and verse 13, your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. They came to a place where they literally told God, you know, it's just not worth it. We're not getting enough out of this thing, so we're going to walk away. Man, how many people do that in the church today? How many people do that in their relationship with God? You know, I tried it, and I didn't get everything I wanted, so now I'm walking away. So what had happened here, the people of God had flipped the script. No longer thinking that, that God is good and man has failed, but they had decided, you know, Man is good, and God has failed. He's failed us. See, they were asking the question, God, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? Now, for us on this side of the cross, we understand, friends, it's already all been done for us. So my, my appeal to this morning is this. Don't become like the Israelites of old. Don't let those same sentiments echo through the church today, through your life. God goes on then to tell the story of, of a remnant, a, a faithful group. They didn't complain. They didn't blame God. They, they didn't withhold anything from God. And you know, I, I believe that's what God's looking for today. He is looking even today for that, for that remnant, that remnant that will be wholehearted in their worship, wholehearted in their love and, and their commitment for Him. Well, Nehemiah ends the Old Testament narratively. But here... Malachi ends the Old Testament prophetically. 
Notice what he says in, in the final two verses, chapter 4, 5, and 6. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. You know, the Old Testament, it ends with the warning of a curse. In fact, when you read chapter 4, you're going to see seven different times where God talks about a curse, a warning. If you don't come to me, this is what will happen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your faithful and perfect love for us. Please forgive us of our, our lack of faith. We give you thanks for your faithfulness. God, may, may we be that, that, that remnant today, wholehearted in our worship of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.